All right, brethren, at this time we are blessed to, to have our sermon for today, brought to us by Mr. Curtis Whiteley. His message is entitled, Jesus on the Law of Retaliation. Good afternoon. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate it. How great thou art. No matter if it's the 1800s, 1900s, 2018, that song never gets old. It's a beautiful, beautiful classic hymn. So as Matt just pointed out, uh, the title of this message today is Jesus on the Law of Retaliation. And we're going to look at uh, we're going to look at Matthew, the fifth chapter, verses 38 to 42. And I've hung out quite a bit in the last year or so in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. But I'm just going to kind of ask and, and list some basic scriptures today. Who in here believes the scripture of Romans, the third chapter, verse 23, that says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Of course, we all believe in that, right? In a lot of ways, it's the basis for which we are here. It's the basis for which why Jesus, as we have sung almost in every one of the hymns or songs that's been sung today, why Jesus had to die for us. Because in this passage, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, you have this anomaly you know what an anomaly is? It's like two juxtaposing, you know, two contradicting ideas. I'm not saying that there's a contradiction in the Scripture. I'm saying that the, it creates a contradiction in reality in the sense that all of us have fallen short of God's glory. And so the next question that has to be asked after that, well, if we've all fallen short of the glory of God, then how can we be saved? Because we understand that God is perfect. That God is a complete holy God. And to fellowship with that God. To actually have eternal life with that God. We have to be perfect as He is. And we understand how that's made possible. Through our Savior Jesus Christ. Through what He did for us. The love that He had for us. Now... I brought that out because I was just looking. Obviously, the word retaliation, just to kind of be clear, the, the word retaliation is not in the scriptures here that we're going to be reading. But the idea is there. Retaliation, just in the English dictionary, is the action of harming someone because they have harmed us or oneself. It's revenge. That's what retaliation is. Someone does something to you, you retaliate back and you do the same thing to them. But in light of that scripture, all have fallen short of the glory of God. I want us to think about a reality, and that is, what have we done to God? We're going to read Matthew, the fifth chapter, verse 38 through 42, and I want us to think about that. How has our behavior, since we've been born, been towards God? Were we perfect? Obviously not. There was a quote or a part of a song that we sung today. I'm not super familiar with it. But in this, one of the songs that we sung, and I just was listening to it, so this is kind of off the cuff, 
there was a lyric in there that said something, I'm paraphrasing, I heard my voice among the mockers. You know, Jesus is on the cross, Jesus is on the stake. And he's on that stake, and it, the song talks about, obviously, why is he on that stake? He's on that stake because of every one of us. We put him there. Obviously, I'm talking metaphorically. He had to do what he did because of the reality that all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. And so it's interesting, in light of that, I want us to get into this, in just a minute, this... this uh, string of passages in Matthew, but I want us to frame this with going in with this idea, with this reality, which we understand, which we know, which is a central principle of Christianity, of our faith. But in light of what Christ has done for us, retaliation, it seems kind of silly, as we're going to see, and as what I believe that Jesus brings out. Matthew, the fifth chapter. We're just going to read that real quick. Matthew, the fifth chapter. I'm going to skip over a scripture that I gave to Brian. Matthew, the fifth chapter, verse 38. Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. And so that question I asked us just a minute ago, what have we done to God? Have we struck God on the cheek before? Obviously not physically, not literally, but metaphorically. Have we mocked God? Have we spat on God? Have we ignored God? Has God retaliated against us? It's interesting because Jesus gives this to a group of people that would understand what he's saying, even though what he's saying might be a little bit different in the way in which they had heard it before. But in some ways, we have the entire story. We see the results of Jesus' life, how it ended. We see the exposition of what those events meant we have the epistles of Paul. We have the general epistles. We have the book of Revelation. We have all of these writings that we know are a part of God's inspired word that have expounded upon the meanings of these events and what they meant for me and you and for God's soon coming kingdom. And now we get to read these things in light of not just the Old Testament and the events that took place, but also in light of other events that would come after the day in which Jesus said these things that were recorded. So today, in this message on Jesus and the law of retaliation, i got a, just a, a few objectives. First, I want us to review how the law of retribution was interpreted. Because Jesus is getting at some things here that many people would understand in Jesus' day. And Jesus is saying, you have to change your attitude in the way in which you look at your neighbor, and the way in which you respond to your neighbor. Secondly, I want to analyze how Jesus commands us to respond in a different way to those who offend us. And thirdly, consider ways that we can give what we have to what people ask for. How can we provide provision? Because 
Jesus says, as you, we just read, when someone asks something of you, in a nutshell, don't begrudge them, but give willingly and with a willing heart. And so, as we look at this passage, we have to really kind of look back. We have to kind of get into the context of the day. And Jesus, like he does in this entire section of Scripture, he says, I need you to start rethinking about things in a different way. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, in the ancient Near East, the area in which Jesus was born, lived in, and had thousands of years of history, before the Romans even, before all of those groups that we see that are here in this present time, in the New Testament, that was a wild place to live. I mean, we live in 2018, we have sovereign governments that have laws, that have court systems that are structured for justice, authorities, not so much long, long time ago. And essentially, in the ancient Near East, in the 18th century BC, somewhere around there, historians say the first law code came about. Anybody ever heard of the Code of Hammurabi? Well, according to historians, that's one of the first legal codes that we have in history, at least in this part of the world. The uh, Code of Hammurabi becomes kind of the basis of this idea, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's the Latin lex talionis, which is basically dual retribution. Someone does something to you, they, if justice is going to be paid, you pay back completely what is given to, or uh, what they have done to you. Now, if you ever have read through the Code of Hammurabi, I've read parts of it. It's difficult to understand. Uh, it's translated, I mean, for someone like me or most of us, we'd have to read it in English. And it's translated probably from cuneiform tablets, which obviously is not going to be a perfect translation. But if you ever read a little bit of it, you'll quickly notice that it's pretty harsh. You know, it's the idea that, you know, you hear sometimes, you know, that, you know, someone, you know, uh, chops your finger off, they get their finger chopped off. Uh, if someone uh, cuts your leg off, they get their leg cut off. You know, the eye for an eye, the tooth for a tooth. And it's very, very harsh, at least for 2018 eyes. You know, for the way, in the world that we live in, it seems very harsh. But in this time... Actually, in comparison to the way the social structures were, it was actually a little bit better because it brought about some authority. It brought about some official structures in place on how you would deal with people who have wronged other people. And so, just to kind of give you also a heads up, this law was very, very one-sided. Uh, it favored men. It was a patriarchal document, obviously favoring men over women. A man that was caught maybe uh, in adultery might have to do something like pay some money, whereas a woman caught in adultery was thrown in a lake and not to swim. Okay? So just take that as, as you may as an understanding where this might have come from as far as how it had been influenced. So we find this also in the Old Testament. Jesus is referencing... The Old Testament, Exodus, the 21st chapter, verses 24 through 25, which has the same language. Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, and stripe for stripe. And the same thing we find in Leviticus, the 24th chapter, 
as well as Deuteronomy, the 19th chapter, verse 21. Now, many people look at this as an example of why the Old Testament is so inhumane and brutish. That I can't accept that. Look, I mean, people are dying there, tooth for tooth. You know, that's, that, you know, that's where, this is kind of the epitome of where people say, man, that's like Old Testament stuff. That, that's like Old Testament level, you know, punishment right there. Well, actually, if you actually look into it, applying 21st century eyes is probably not going to work. It's probably going to make you think that's very, very harsh. It's very difficult for people to understand. But this law, which was a law of God, was a law that did several things. Number one, it ensured legal restitution. Legal restitution. Think about this. People in this day and age, when they would do something, it would prevent them from going out and taking personal vengeance among people because people who did something to them, it might seem like they were to just go out and do the exact same thing to the person who did it to them, but they were required actually to go to official judges and official authorities in order for this to be taken, in order for this justice to be taken, uh, to, to be carried out. Leviticus the 19th, 19th chapter verse 18 talks about and against personal vengeance. And we know that vengeance, when it, comes to, uh, when it comes to taking upon our own retribution, that belongs to God. Now I want to go to an Old Testament passage. I want to go to Exodus the 34th chapter. Exodus the 34th chapter. Because I think this is a good example of this law being interpreted incorrectly, or shall we say, you know what, I apologize, I think we are going to go to Genesis, the 34th chapter, not Exodus. Genesis, the 34th chapter. And I'm just going to read through this, and of course it's dealing with Jacob and his sons and his family, and they're living in a land of very close to another group of people, the Hevites. And in verse 1 it says, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And then Shechem, the son of Hamar, the Hevite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her, and lay with her, and violated her. His soul was strongly attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, get me this young woman as a wife. So we've read this story before. We know what happens. This man, he obviously is probably not involving himself in consensual relations with Dinah. And the story goes on in verse 5, Jacob's reaction. And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. And now his sons were with his livestock in the field. And so Jacob held his peace until they came. Then Hamer the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him, and the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it. And the men were grieved and very angry, because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to be done. But Hamer spoke with him, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife, and make marriages with us, Give your daughters to us and take our daughters to yourselves. 
So you shall dwell with us, and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade in it, and acquire possessions for yourselves. And so you have Shechem here, and the Hevites trying to make this deal with Jacob and his sons, and say, hey, we can coexist. You know, what would you want for Dinah? Let's make a deal. Let's drop a contract. Let's live with each other. Let's benefit from each other. Verse 11, Then Shechem said to her father and her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give you. Ask me ever so much dowry and gift, and I will give according to what you say to me. But give me the young woman as a wife. But the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor his father, and spoke deceitfully because he had defiled Dinah their sister. And they said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a reproach to us. But on this condition, we will consent to you, if you become as we are, if every male of you is circumcised, and we will give our daughters to you. And we will take your daughters to us, and we will dwell with you, and we will become one people. But if you will not heed us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and be gone. And so Israel, Jacob and his sons, they're kind of, they're kind of going with this. Obviously, you've read the story, and we're going to continue to read on. But in their minds, they're looking for revenge. They're not really looking for a deal. They're looking and being led by the anger that's in their heart to get back at what Shechem had done to Dinah. Verse 18, And their words pleased Hamor and Shechem. Hamor's son, so the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. He was more honorable than all the household of his father. And Hamor and Shechem, his son, came to the gate of their city and spoke with the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Therefore, let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For indeed, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men consent to dwell with us, to be one people. If every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and every animal of theirs be ours? Only let us consent to them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city heeded Hamor and Shechem, his son. Every male was circumcised, and all who went out of the gate of a city. And so now you have these men that think that they are in basically kind of a, a contract with Jacob and his sons. And so continuing on, just the last little bit, I know this is a lot of reading. But I just felt like we needed to read the whole story to get the gist of what's going here. Verse 25, Now it came to pass on the third day when they were in pain that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, remember those two individuals, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. They got their revenge. They lied in wait. They were deceitful. Does that excuse what Shechem did? Of course not. But what does the Bible tell us? Vengeance is God's. Vengeance is God's. So when they killed Hamor and Shechem and his son with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out, and the sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. No mention in this scripture or in the story about God's approval of this. They took their sheep, their oxen, and their donkeys what was in the city and what was in the field, and all their wealth, and all their little ones, 
and their wives they took captive, and they plundered even all that was in the houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And since I am fewer in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me. I shall be destroyed, and my household and I. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a harlot? Now this is a good story for two reasons. Number one, we know that the Bible has a lot of violence in it. And God ordains that. That God tells Israel to go out and to do these things. They have been commissioned by God Himself to do these things. In this story, they don't have a commission from God. But they're taking matters in their own hands. And so when we look at the idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and it seems very harsh to someone living in 2018, and this is an example of why it actually could be merciful. Because it governs the extent in which retribution could be given. Obviously, what Shechem did was very, very wrong. And the extent of it was wrong. But we see that Levi and Simeon, or Jacob and his sons being led by Levi and Simeon, took it way too far. Way too far. In fact, we know that God disapproves of this because in Genesis, the 49th chapter, verse 5, in Jacob's prophecies concerning his sons, it says, Simeon and Levi are brothers, instruments of cruelty in their dwelling place. Now, it's interesting you're thinking, what does that have to do with what we just read? Well, this word instruments in the Hebrew is actually a word that's oftentimes associated with knives that would be associated with circumcision. And so many people who look at this and many who have analyzed this text think it's a clear reference back to this event when Simeon and Levi took in their own hands vengeance and tried to play it out against the Hevites in Shechem and Hamar. So we see that God was displeased in the manner in which they carried out this process. And so continuing on, in verse 39, kind of reread that, and what Jesus has to say, giving us some background of Matthew, the fifth chapter, verses 38 through 42. In verse 39, it says, or 39, but I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek Turn the other to him also. And so we see here that Jesus says resist evil. Or rather he says don't resist evil. And, and, and the evil one. Many passages in the Greek say the evil one. Obviously we have many passages of Jesus as well as other people saying resist evil in the Bible. God wants us to resist evil. But in this case, the way in which it reads... Resist means you were retaliating with physical harm. Now, obviously, many of us today probably don't have a problem with a lot of people wanting to hit us in the face. Sometimes we will, obviously. People do get physical. People do get violent. So we have to ask the question, does this only apply to people who actually want to physically punch us in the face? Or can we actually extrapolate different principles from this? Because we live in a different world. We have a lot of the same problems. I mean, I think that if we just, you know, I'm very reminded of being a father of young children. And I think the epitome of this human condition of wanting to retaliate is seen in children. Siblings, right? One sibling pinches one. The other one pinches the other. And it's this pinching battle going back and forth. 
And you ask him, why did you pinch him? Well, he pinched me. And the cycle just continues on and on and on. And so, obviously, we do see there's a spirit, there's an attitude that goes with this. Because you get into adulthood, you get into adolescence and then adulthood, and we're going to come into a lot of problems because people are going to wrong us in many other ways, and probably the majority of ways that people wrong us is probably not them physically trying to hit us. But in other ways, well, someone spread a rumor about me. Well, I'm working at this job and this person, you know, we're kind of somewhat in competition for maybe a position, a promotion, and they go and they, they, they tell the boss man or the boss woman or whoever it is that I did this, which is something wrong. And you go to yourself, well, I tell you what, I, I look really bad in front of my boss. I, I'm going to have to come up with some sort of story about them. So we're even. I'm going to even the playing field. Many different examples, I think, that we can think of in our life where we see this. So Jesus says, don't resist evil in the sense that don't retaliate back evil for evil. This agrees with what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 15, when he says, See that no one pays back evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. Do we look for the good in cases of being persecuted? Do we look for the good, the good solution, when people wrong us? Let's go to Romans, the 12th chapter. And then we'll come back to Matthew, because there's more to be looked at. Romans, the 12th chapter. We're going to pick it up in verse 17. Romans, 7, Romans 12, verse 17. Paul says, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as it depends on, on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. We understand that God, it's His right to carry out vengeance. It's His right to right wrongs, not ours. And he quotes this passage here. It says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. And I thought, what does that mean? Are we hoping, I mean, coals of fire, when I read that in English, am I hoping that somehow by me doing good to this person, that maybe somehow bad's going to come upon them? Coals of fire on their head. And so I investigated this a little bit more. And I went to the Proverbs where it was read, and I looked at some different language tools, and I looked at some different commentaries, some textual things. And the best interpretation that I could find of this is coals on one's head is where you prick their conscience. In so doing, returning right or good for evil could actually be evangelistic. The person could actually be pricked to the heart in guilt and realize, wow, in my anger and whatever it was that caused me, that produced this behavior towards this person, they repaid me with goodness. They repaid me with peacefulness. And in so doing, making themselves feel not very good about themselves and pricking their conscience. It's interesting because I think at the heart of 
Acts, the second chapter. You know, we've read Acts, the second chapter, right? It's the day of Pentecost. Acts, the second chapter. We don't have to, to turn there, but Peter's up preaching to all of these people, and he's telling them about, about Jesus, and he's telling them about the events that had just unfolded. He's telling them about how Jesus died, how he rose back up from the grave, how he was put to death by the hands of sinners, by essentially all of us, but obviously Romans as well as leaders of the Sanhedrin. He goes through many of the different scriptures about how and why this had to be done. And in verse 37, it says, Now when they heard this, this is of Acts 2, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Think about that. They were cut to the heart. The bottom line is this. The evil that we've done towards God, the dishonoring that we've done towards God from our previous life as far as before we were, you know, understood the knowledge of Christ, before we were baptized, and still sometimes having to struggle with that old man that wants to cling on. No matter the way we slice it, all of us, as the lyric of the song that we heard, our voice can be heard among the mockers, metaphorically. And how did God repay us? He repaid us by despite that, despite that, He died for our sins. He sent His only Son to die for our sins. And it's interesting here, because Jesus doesn't just say, I mean, obviously getting hit in the face is, probably doesn't feel good. It's been a long time since I've been hit in the face. I've been hit in the face before. I had friends, you know, we would fight sometimes. But think about how you would get hit in the right in the right cheek. Not everyone here in this day and age were southpaws. If you know what I mean. Most people probably weren't, I don't know what the statistics are, most people are probably right-handed. or uh, It seems to be the vast majority. And if you're left-handed and you're a good pitcher, you can go off and be a big commodity in the, in the Major League Baseball. But what I'm saying is, is that when he says if someone strikes you on the right cheek, there's something going on here. If you strike someone on the right cheek, and the majority of people are probably going to be right-handed, what's, saying, what's going on here is someone is getting backhanded. Their right hand is hitting them in the right cheek. And not only was it something that actually would cause physical pain, but it was actually a symbol of complete dishonorness. You were completely dishonored a person by doing this. A backhand was something... That was one of the most insulting things that you could do to a person in this day and age. Because it wasn't just the physical pain that you were causing. It was actually the act and the symbol of it. You were you know, putting that person in contempt. It was like the equivalent of spitting on someone. And so if we, we, we take that and we say, well, what are some of the things that can be really insulting to us? And how do we react? Now, I also want to put a disclaimer out here. I do not believe, and I think many of us would agree with me, that Jesus is saying that you need to be a, a doormat. You need to live your life, let people walk all over you, do whatever they want to do to you, and never do anything to protect yourself or make provisions for, you know, to, to, to not be in that position. That's not what Jesus is saying here. 
I firmly believe it's an attitude that Jesus wants us to have. An attitude of repaying evil with good. Repaying evil with good. To being the light of the world. To being the witness that Jesus wants to be. To epitomize what Jesus himself did. Are we sons and daughters of God? Of course we are. Is God holy? Of course He is. Is God all good? Of course He is. Has God had more long-suffering than anyone can even imagine that any of us could probably have in a physical human body? Of course He does. And so when we take the fact and, and, and the reality of what God's done for us in light of what we've done to Him and in the undeservingness that we have, you know, the, 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 the treasure that we've been given in light of that, to embody that in our life. And when people wrong us, our first reaction not just be, I'm going to get them. They did this to me, I'm going to do that to them. That right there is what I think Jesus is getting at. Moving on, he continues, and he also talks about something else. He talks about something else in Matthew, the, the, the fifth chapter that we've read. Not just being hit in the face, but also, if someone asks something for you, if, if, verse 40, if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Let him have your cloak also. So a tunic in this day was kind of like a shirt that was worn under the cloak next to the skin, but longer than a regular shirt. It kind of cover up. It was kind of the undergarment, I guess you would say, of what you wore. And most people in this day didn't have very many cloaks or tunics. They just had one because they were probably living in poverty. The rich, on the other hand, they had many different pieces of clothing. This was important, not for style, but for survival. This was among one of the very little possessions that people had, even the ones living in poverty. So taking their tunic away and their cloak away was a very, really big deal. It was a really big deal. And so again, Jesus is giving this attitude away. What do you have? The little that you have, are you willing to use and help people with? You know, there's an illustration that I was reading when I was looking at this from an article on this in, uh, by a guy by the name of Bob Deffenbaugh. And he's talking about Exodus, the 22nd chapter, as well as Deuteronomy 24. And he's talking a little bit about, in the Old Testament, there were laws that governed, you know, loans and things like that. And, and people sometimes would have to go out and take a loan out. And so under the Old Testament, borrowing laws, a person who would borrow money could provide a garment as a pledge or a collateral to help ensure that he would pay the loan back. And so... You need some money. You don't really have anything. But most people, even the poorest, would have at least a tunic or, or a cloak. Normal practice at the time would be that people would wear a lighter inner tunic and also a heavier outer garment or cloak to be used in colder conditions. So why would a person give such a piece of clothing for collateral? Well, if he was really poor, that may be all that he had. But it gets awfully cold at night sometimes, even in the desert, depending on the time of year. So the Old Testament had a provision that required that the garment be returned to the poor person every night for warmth. So let's say that the poor person took out a 30-day loan. And obviously, 30-day loans, the, their loans might be a little shorter than the loans that we have today. 
But no interest would be charged if they were to pay it back in the time allotted in the contract and, and, and whatever they agreed to. So no interest would be charged and the pledge, the garment, would have to exchange hands between borrower and lender every day, twice a day, for 30 days. The lender was not allowed to go into the borrower's house and had to return the garment every night. The borrower was to turn the garment back to the lender each morning until the loan was paid back. Now the reason I read this was because I think it was very telling about how detailed the law was and what the law there points to. There were laws that were basically trying to prevent people from taking advantage of individuals. And that's what God wants from us naturally in our attitudes. Do we live a life? Do we interact with people where when we have these situations that we're doing things out of love for the other person? It kind of gets to the idea of what the law of God was all about. We see the physical. When you read it, you see the physical of the law. You see all these stipulations. But do we ever stop and think about what's at the heart of the purpose of that law? In reality, the heart of God is in it. Providing provision for one's fellow man and, and providing a provision to where there's no way to take advantage of that individual because it's not in the character of the person actually that is carrying out these acts. Jesus also talks about, and this is something also that we have to bring out that's historical to understand it. Someone asks you to go one mile, go two. Now, I mean, obviously, people probably are not saying, you know, hey, will you walk a mile with me? I need you to walk a mile with me. But we understand that saying is, is, you know, if someone asks a favor of you, hey, can you help me out here? And maybe you say, man, I went the extra mile for that person. Like you did above and beyond what was reasonably expected among people maybe just trying to help someone out. And these days, in the New Testament, Roman soldiers actually could require people civilians to carry loads for them such as equipment or luggage or supplies but usually only up to one mile and so what Jesus is getting at here he's saying hey you know that law that's in place that says that really you're kind of required by Roman law and they're the ones that are in charge and fighting against sin is probably pretty futile you know that law well if someone asks you to help them out and go one mile go two go the extra mile remember that story in Jesus' you know, trek to the cross, there's that guy, right? There's that guy named Simon of Cyrene. And what did the Romans say? Oh, Jesus is here and he's struggling to get to the place that he's going to be crucified, where the cross is going to be implanted, or the stake's going to be implanted to the ground. And this guy, Simon of Cy- the Cyrene, is somewhere, he's a spectator there, and the Roman soldiers made him come over and help Jesus. I think there's an interesting little tale that could be you know, brought from this story. Simon the Cyrene, he's just this spectator. He's required to help Jesus. And when we look at that in light of what Jesus is asking us, go the extra mile. You know, it was probably tough to help Jesus. Jesus was probably very weak at this time. That was probably a very heavy piece of wood. Very difficult. Not only is it, it probably would be easier just to say, hey, I'll carry carry the stake for you. You just walk as much as you can. But, you know, you have a, you know, a person that's very weak, that's, you know, to the point of exhaustion, and not only that, losing copious amounts of blood and severe pain, and they're having to carry this stake, this very heavy stake, because something to be able to hold up 
a full-grown man is probably going to have to be pretty sturdy. It's probably going to have to be pretty hefty. Probably wasn't the most easy thing on Simon the Cyrene. But it doesn't compare to the trek that Jesus made for me and you. And so it's interesting, when we read this in light of the, the, the later events that take place, Jesus says, go the extra mile, which would never compare, uh, uh, compare to the extra mile that Jesus went for me and you. So you had three options here. Resist, do the legal requirements begrudgingly, or do the legal requirements plus some with gladness, is what Jesus is bringing out here. And so in this, I just want to close with this because this next little section I'm going to talk about. Okay, sorry. I want us to go back to Matthew, the fifth chapter. Matthew, back to Matthew, the fifth chapter. The very last passage... And Matthew 5, even, there's another section that I've talked about before about, you know, loving your, your enemies, not just your, your friends. This chapter, Jesus closes with these words. And obviously he's going to continue on, but this section of the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to close with these words. Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. We've got to ask the question, are we sons and daughters of, of God? Of course, the, the Bible tells us we are. The Bible tells us that when we were baptized, that that old man went into a watery grave, or that old woman went into a watery grave and came up in newness of life. And that life now is unified with Jesus Christ. And so, I just was looking at this week, this section of Scripture, and I was thinking about the world in which we live in, thinking a lot about, you know, what nature tends to tell us to be like. You know, we're supposed to be strong. We're not supposed to let people, you know, get the best of us and things like that. And I'm also thinking about what Doyle said earlier about training leaders and, and about being an example to the world. And about what Jesus says here, but also about what Paul says later about keeping burning coals on people's heads and about the witness that me and you can be when we live a life that's in line with the way that Jesus was to people, to us. All of us are going to be in situations where we obviously are going to have people that are going to do things that are not maybe the nicest of things. We got a couple months before Passover, which kind of marks our memorial of us proclaiming the death of Jesus Christ and all that brings. And I just was thinking, you know, it's, it's always time to think about those things and about that renewing of the covenant and about examining ourselves. And in light of, you know, what the world tells us and how the world tells us to be, and, you know, I've had some discussions lately about the idea of, you know, how can you be an effective witness? And then sometimes even asking the question, man, do I even... Maybe you ask the same question. I mean, if people meet me out on the street, and when I interact with them, people that don't know me, and they don't really know anything about my history or my background, I mean, I mean, could people guess that I'm a follower of Christ without me telling them, hey, I'm a Christian? 
And I think that one of the best ways that we can be a witness to people is the way that we interact with them. Of course, I've said this many times. I think everyone would agree with that. And obviously, we need to tell people about the gospel of Christ. But how do we act in those difficult moments where people slap us in the face? When people demand something from us? When people ask us to, for help? What can we give them in return? What can we give them in return? Most of us probably don't have a lot of money. Most of us probably aren't rich where we have an abundance to be able to you know, put people up and, and things like that. And of course, we, we do have probably a little bit. We, we do try to give if we can, I'm sure. But what do we have? The love of Christ. I know that sounds really cliche. Sometimes that's more meaningful than anything. Someone to talk to, someone to listen to their problems. I've learned one thing that's interesting, and it's from my own experience growing up, uh, but it's also in my experience dealing with people that are, you know, young, 15, 16, 17, 18 years old. Listening to them and genuinely caring for what's going on in their life and stopping and taking a moment with them is very impactful. When I was a kid growing up in this church, I can tell you this. I didn't come here because I wanted to listen to sermons every week. I didn't. And that doesn't mean that there weren't good sermons going on. It just at that time, I was not really interested in them. But what made me be excited and enjoy coming to church was people cared about me. And they didn't just say they cared about me, but they lived and acted like they cared to, about me. They would ask me about what's going on in my life. They would ask me about things I was interested in. Sometimes that's all it takes. Especially the people sometimes who wrong you. There might be a reason they do it. They might have something going on in their life. They, they, obviously, there's a myriad of reasons why someone could do these things to you. How do we repay them? Do we repay them in a manner in which could heap hot coals upon 